Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the after show. This is where we unpack all the commentary here in our regular podcast. I'm Merrin Somerset Webb. This week, John Stepick, senior reporter at Bloomberg and author of the Daily Money Distilled newsletter, which if you haven't subscribed to by now, you must subscribe to, joins me to discuss my conversation with Barry Norris, founder, CEO and CIO of Argonaut. John, what did you think? I thought that was great. Um, well, that'll do. Sign yeah, off now. I- John thought it was great. We're all done. <laughs> the nice thing about Barry is he is very straight. And obviously that's one thing that people in his world, the kind of hedge fund, long shot world, do tend to be a bit more uh, forthright and outspoken than your average fund manager. Mm-hmm. But it's just good to hear someone digging in and trying to make some sense of particularly the whole kind of like renewable sector. Yeah, And basically... Stating the common sense reality, but then backing it up with numbers mm. as well. Mm. One of those it, sectors, isn't it, where there's an awful lot of hope over reality and that we would all absolutely love it. Who would not love it if wind was the answer to everything and if wind energy was cheap and it could answer all our prayers and get us through the energy transition with no problem? Because so many people want that, they find it quite hard to accept that it might not actually be true. Yeah, there's also an added, obviously, political side to it as well, which makes it hard to have a a reasonable conversation Mm. about it because Mm. you're deemed to be talking something down if you point out issues with it. I was going to say, you're immediately treated as though you know you don't want an energy transition or as though you're in, in the pocket of, of big oil if you criticise big wind. Yeah, exactly. What Barry was saying about wind energy is proven, like even as we speak, to be absolutely correct because, you know, for example, like he was talking about Orsted and, and obviously it's had some issues, but also I was reading a piece on the Bloomberg Terminal about how Siemens Energy has basically had to get a a big credit line that's partly backstopped by the German government in order to fund fixing its wind turbines and it's because it's found that there's basically lots of potential flaws or actual flaws with wind turbines they need to be sorted out and that would you know basically just cost an insurmountable amount of money for the company to to do if it wasn't being subsidised by the government and people will talk about subsidies for fossil fuels and all the rest of it but I think Barry's getting to the point that we're substituting 
I, a kind of superior form of energy for an inferior form. Yeah. At least that's what we're trying to do. And that's going to go badly. The problem we've got at the moment, if we've got an energy transition where all the products are inferior. So EVs are inferior to the internal combustion. I know someone will tell me they like driving their electric car for, for five miles a day. But EVs are inferior products. Heat pumps are inferior products. Wind is an inferior product. So in order to get people to use inferior products, you require governments to get involved through subsidies, through banning all the other more useful products, and you require zero interest rates in order for all of these projects to be stacked up with zero-cost debt in order for equity investors to make a return. And I also think that what... It's amazing that this isn't talked about very much, but we keep going on about the difference between the America and the rest of the world in terms of economic performance. And hardly anyone, or, or no one ever leads on the fact that less than 20 years ago, America basically discovered that it was sitting on Saudi Arabia. You know, they, they had like tons of oil and gas that they previously couldn't access that they were suddenly able to access. And we kind of all throw our hands up and say, oh, I wonder what America's got going for it. Is it because they're more capitalist? Well, probably. Is it because they dealt with their banks better after 2008? Yes. Is it anything to do with the fact that they're sitting on like an absolutely massive pile of fossil fuels that they're not afraid to use? Oh, no, surely not. That can't be anything to do with it. This is not a topic of conversation that anyone discusses in adult terms anymore. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's one thing we know that history tells us is that all great all great leaps forward are made in times of plentiful, cheap, dense energy. And if we purposefully move away from that cheap, dense energy, which we may have to do, uh, do have to do, um, things change. And we can't deny that making energy expensive makes a difference to the way that we grow. Exactly. But, I mean, to be fair, the other things, we, we do also have an alternative and it's like, is nuclear power. Mm -hmm. And obviously investors have cottoned onto that and we're having one of the, the cyclical excitement moments for Rainium. I think that Cameco is finally back at uh, whatever price it was whenever uh, in 2011 when the Fukushima disaster put paid to the last yep. uh, kind of like nuclear um, you know, excitability phase. Um but again, that's that's because that's kind of not in the same realm as the uh, kind of inverted commas green stuff. It, nobody talks about that seriously either. So we really are kind of shooting ourselves in the foot over um, a mixture of magical thinking and politics and semantics. It's really um, a big mistake. So one of the interesting things about everything that Barry said in the podcast that we did with him is that only a couple of days later, we're seeing evidence all over the place, and uh, not just the Siemens thing, but elsewhere, that he's absolutely right. So as we, we talked in our introduction briefly about this business of the government changing the maximum price they're going to offer in CFD contracts, which is a direct result of there being uh, no bids for the the projects at the last government auction, which was a bit of a blow to the UK and their uh, renewable, renewable power strategy. So obviously they've had to have a change and the government has pushed this through saying that this is about a global rise in inflation impacting supply chains and that presented challenges for projects, etc. But Barry's point, of course, is it's about a lot more than just inflation impacting supply chains. It's about the fact that, as he says, this is simply not an, an economic sector. And if you look at the things that he said and then you look at the way that governments are responding, it's beginning to feel like he's the one who's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I 
think so. I don't um, feel that you can. I think the the key thing here was uh, Barry's point that actually, even if we you know build an awful lot more wind energy, we don't really have the ability to use it because it's only turning up for work as he puts it at certain points, and then you still need all the backup stuff to back it up. So if we are going to end up having to invest a lot more startup capital, basically, in getting these things built, then I don't really see why we aren't spending it on nuclear reactors, which have got similar planning issues. Um, you know, because one thing that lots of people are complaining about is that the boomer generation doesn't want to, you know, have to have the, the cables necessary to link wind farms up to national grid. Well, you know, if we just built, you know, a, a number of nuclear reactors, which again, you know, people hate them as well, um, and, and go through all the planning pain of getting them done, um, then we'd have a reliable source of electricity um, and, you know, uh, the, the kind of backup, the back load um, electricity that, that we need that's that's reliable and that you can switch on at any point and, and get it. Um, so it just seems that there's a lot of capital being misallocated to this sector, which is partly because in the zero interest rate era, you know, this all caught on and the capital misallocation didn't wasn't as visible. Um, and now it's becoming incredibly visible. So one of the most interesting parts of the conversation was about the extent to which, even if wind was great, we would need any more wind energy. So one of the things that, that Barry's done is looked at these many discrete periods in which wind has been blowing in the UK and wind has not been blowing in the UK and what happens. And what he sees is that when the wind is blowing in the UK, we already have very cheap power, very, very cheap mm -hmm. power. And when the wind is, is, is blowing properly, the price of, of energy in the UK goes to zero and below. So when things are going well for wind, you actually have a glut of power in the UK, for which we have no demand because we can't store it and we can't export it. So it just goes to zero and, and that's that. So if that is already happening when the wind is blowing, then why would you put up more wind? And I said to him, well, yeah. I guess maybe the wind blows in different places at different times. And he says, that's not really how it works. When there's wind, there's wind. When there isn't wind, there isn't wind. So you can't put out more wind farms. It, it just doesn't work like that. And I thought that was a, a very interesting way of looking at it. We've already got a glut of cheap power when the wind is blowing that we can't store and we can't export it. So why would we build more? It's, it's a genuinely slightly odd point. And I guess the only way that I can think about it is that in... In some ways, it's a zero interest rate phenomenon, um, like a lot of other ideas where, and obviously it's a very politicised one, and therefore the misallocation of capital is kind of done by the government, and so you don't, you don't as rapidly get to the point where someone runs out of money, basically. Um, and I, I think that's that's the best explanation for it. Um, beyond that, it doesn't make any sense. We talked a little bit about batteries because, uh, you know, you hear so much about the different types of batteries that are under development and how that thing that Barry talks about in terms of, uh, you know, let's not put up any more wind farms because we can't store it, etc. What if we can store it? What if we can? Surely that's the answer. So 
uh, you know, Barry and I talked a bit about how we can do that. And and what he said was, you know, please, please don't tell me that there's a battery that's just been invented that is going to start storing loads of power very cheaply for a long period of time. Because, you know, the debate, he says, has become very ideological. And as far as he can see, well, everybody wants that battery to exist. We want that battery to exist so badly. But it just it just doesn't. It just doesn't. Mm. Um, and until it does, then this is all, all a bit pointless. Um, and he said, you know, that that fact that everyone wants this so much and that the stocks or the companies that are involved in all these things are constantly recapitalized because people want it so badly. That's mm. why so many ESG stocks and particularly renewable energy stocks, Barry says, they're just the gift that keep on giving because they don't go bankrupt. But, you know, they go to the edge of bankruptcy, which is great for great for the shorts, and then they get recapitalized, and then you get to do it again and again and again, rights issue after rights issue after rights issue. Um, and he said, uh, it's just, this is a conversation we had not on the podcast, he said, you know, that's just a beautiful thing for a short seller. Um, and that, of course, is not the kind of thing that people want to hear, but it's been working for Barry, whose performance has been spectacular. Now, one other thing I wanted to say about all the things that we've talked about is a lot of what Barry says is very controversial. And as I say, it's things that people don't want to be true. So I would encourage everybody to go to the Argonaut website and look at the work that Barry has done on this and look at his data and take it from there. He's written a, a good piece called uh, Britain is a Goner with the Wind, which is um, oh, you know, quite clever. Um, <laughs> and in that is, is all the data. So you know, if you, if you listen to the podcast and feel furious, which I'm sure lots of people will, then it's mm. important that you then go and look at the data and see the modeling barriers done. And uh, you can try and pick holes in, in his data rather than disagree on an ideological path. Is that fair? That's really sensible. Mm. And uh, obviously send in your uh, quibbles to John to Barry send them to rather John. than us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One thing we should say is that Barry's portfolio is very much positioned for inflation. Mm. You know, he's expecting a higher for longer long-term inflationary environment. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, that's what, what I gathered from what we talked about it. And he's a believer as we are in the idea that we're at a turning point in the macro and investing regime. We're buying it. But now, the last couple of years, we find that as a result of all of this money printing, which, yes, did get into the real economy because the liability of those assets that that the central banks were buying ended up in terms of uh, expanding bank deposits. That resulted in significant inflation. That means that interest rates have gone up. And I think what we're seeing... And we are going to see higher rates and inflation going forward, particularly because of the very high levels of um, uh, debt across the Western world. So if we suddenly find we're moving into a disinflationary or deflationary environment, um, then that may have some impact on some of the stocks he holds. Yeah, I, I think that belief and our belief is going to be tested over the next, you know, maybe six months, maybe a year. Um, and I, you know, I personally, my, I think higher for longer and more inflationary than not. But it's not, uh, it's not my strongest conviction I've ever had by a long way. Um, uh, you know, I appreciate the argument that on the one hand, governments are massively indebted, which points to a more kind of inflationary environment overall. At the same time, the monetarists have been right about Everton and, you know, they're pointing to, you know, kind of like deflation coming up. Um, so I just, it's I think it's worth being flexible about it. 
Um, I suppose the inflationary so, yeah. case is that the second we hit any type of deflation or recession in our age of big government, governments won't mm. be able to hold the line and there'll be more printing almost immediately. I think that that's the sort of real case for higher for longer, isn't it? From a, from a monetarist point of view. I think that's a good argument, and I, I think it's a reasonable argument, but it kind of boils down to what the political environment is like at the time. Um, and, you know, like obviously with Paul Volcker, he was able to tackle inflation because by then it really was public enemy number one. And everyone was, you know, I mean, nobody was happy about it, but at the end of the day, if you had to create the economy to get rid of inflation, then it was seen as politically acceptable. Um, I suspect that you're right. I think that we'd we'd have to go through another cycle of inflation being even worse before we got to that point. Because one of the things for central banks this time round is that this is the okay bit. It's like we've got we've still got full employment. Um, inflation is uncomfortably high, but coming down. Central banks have kind of been seen to do something, but it hasn't actually really hurt anyone except for you know some people with mortgages. And at the moment, frankly, you know. The, the, the attitude is that they can afford it. Um, so, yeah, so I think we could well get to a point where we see recessionary data coming in, the central banks cut too fast, everything starts taking off again. Um, you know, I th that's, certainly, that's certainly possible. And it is, I guess, my kind of central case, but it's just not, I wouldn't want to bet the house on it, put it that way. We're veering away from talking about Barry. The after show is supposed to be about Barry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, sorry, Barry. Sorry, Barry. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money, the after show. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb, alongside John Steppek, who I think I stopped in the nick of time. It was produced by Samazadi, additional editing by Blake Maples. Finally, a few of the things that John and I have talked about you can look at and read for yourselves. If you go to the show notes, we'll have put in a couple of links. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.